Now, if I were to ask the question today, is God great in this context, uh, I'm sure you know what the answer would be, would you not? The answer would be, of course, God's great. Uh, but it's not exactly self-evident to lots of people in our wider community, as well as often perhaps to us, that God is great. And I want to suggest a number of reasons for that. Firstly, the phrase God is great these days is often associated with the action of terrorists uh, and has pretty negative connotations, does it not? Uh, God is great is often associated with awful things that have happened in the last decade or so. Uh, so as a consequence, declaring that God is great has a certain awkward edge to it. But as well as that, uh, we live in the era when of the celebrity scientists and, and celebrity scientists speak with amazing awe about the wonders of creation and the wonders of the world in which we live. And they'll give full descriptions about giving seemingly conclusive answers to all the big questions uh, that science is exploring at present. Uh, and they, those people uh, don't in any way ever allude to the fact that there may be a creator who lives who really is behind the creation, as we call it, uh, because they think that science literally has all of the answers. Uh, and there is, while there are mysteries, those mysteries can all be explained. Now that is scientific overreach. Uh, and in a couple of weeks time, Karen Hale, who teaches science, will be preaching on the topic of does science have all the answers? So I won't steal all of her thunder. Uh, but nevertheless, that's a very distinct phenomena of the age in, we in which we live. People speaking in all struck terms but not acknowledging that there's anything behind the wonders of creation or the mysteries of the world in which we live. But thirdly, God doesn't seem all that great in our world today. Where is he? He seems largely absent. He's not, it's not obvious that there is a God, in fact, if you live in 21st century Australia, uh, because God is largely absent from our world and largely absent from our lives. <clears throat> a couple of years ago, they did a survey that indicated that ABC Classic FM played two hours of religious music at Easter. Uh, why? Because they didn't want to offend people who aren't believers. Uh, so even at Easter, when they play religious music all the time on ABC Classic FM, they deliberately, <coughs> excuse me, didn't play <coughs> uh, religious music for those reasons. We live in an age when we extol the greatness of other people, whether it's musicians or actors or sporting endeavors, uh, whether it's world leaders, comedians, artists, chefs, celebrities, who are famous for doing nothing in particular, but we don't acknowledge God as great because to acknowledge God as great would be divisive and controversial. But thirdly, many of you have peers, friends, brothers, sisters who have given up the faith and they seem to be living their lives extremely happily uh, and would give the impression that they're incredibly fulfilled without knowing God at all. So the very idea that you need a God and that God is great uh, is largely irrelevant to them. And I think we're all very conscious of that one, aren't we? That people seem to live lives very happily uh, as if God doesn't matter and he's not really relevant. And in fact, as I've said before, one of the most recurring stories these days uh, is not people coming to faith, as Jessica talked about this morning, but it's people who have given up the faith. Uh, that's a recurring story for people who have had a Christian heritage. And fifthly, at a deeply personal level, many people struggle to experience God as great. Well, why do I say that? Well, I wonder how many of us this morning when we sprung out of bed uh, before we had breakfast, prayed the prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Did that thought cross your mind? I have to confess it didn't cross my mind, uh, but we are exhorted to pray that way. 
Uh, how many, when was the last time you genuinely relied upon God for something? And when did God last seem great to you? Many of us have a high need to be in control, and so therefore we like to be in control of our own destiny and our own lives, and we like to actually call the shots in our own lives. And therefore, trusting God or relying upon him is a very big challenge for us because we actually have this incredible need to feel like we're in control. I wonder whether it was the last time you really sensed that God was speaking or God was guiding you. Now, I'm not saying all of that to be profoundly depressing or to prefer sprout heresy this morning, but really to put into context this really surprising and simple story that we have in John chapter 2. I'm suggesting that actually I think for us as Christians living in affluent, comfortable eastern suburbs, Melbourne, uh, we have our own challenges. And one of those challenges is to know God personally and to know God as being great in our lives because we live incredibly comfortable lives. I mean, they have been disturbed a lot in the last 18 months, I know, uh, but nevertheless, we are largely pretty comfortable and secure. Well, today I'm wanting to wrestle with the important, this important area of faith about how we know God has been truly great personally for us. Which brings us to the reading. Now, many of us are familiar with the story. It's a curious thing that John, the writer of the gospel, puts this story as the very first miracle that Jesus performs. If you know anything about John's gospel, there are seven signs and seven sayings, and each of the signs is accompanied by a saying of Jesus, like Jesus feeding the 5,000, and I am the bread of life. Uh, but this is the first sign in the seven, of the seven signs that John has in his gospel. Why pick this seemingly obscure domestic event uh, to be an incredible focus right at the outset of John's gospel? The other gospel writers don't mention this encounter, and Jesus and his mother and his disciples are guests at a wedding uh, in Cana of Galilee. So what's the point of it, and what's the significance of it, and why is it here? Now, if you do go on a tour of Israel, which I've been privileged to lead two of, uh, they'll always want to take you to Cana of Galilee, and my recommendation is if you're going on a tour, don't bother. Um, so, you know, it's a nice little plot spot to go to. When you go there, you go to this church, because there's a church where it's, has been built where everything significant takes place in Israel. Uh, and there's a wine shop next door that you have to go to as part of the tour, and the wine is really ordinary, I can tell you. Uh, so, you know, I wouldn't bother if you're going on a tour of Israel to go to this particular spot. Now, Jewish weddings were long drawn out affairs, and perhaps it's not surprising that they run out of wine, because the events usually went for several days, not just for an afternoon or an evening, like it might be our experience of going to a wedding. And they run out of wine, and that was a big problem. The whole village would have been present, perhaps the people from the villages nearby. So this was a very large event, probably equivalent to going to an Indian wedding, if you've been to an Indian wedding even in Australia, when they'll often have a thousand guests, or they used to before COVID, uh, very large events in that way. There would have been incredible sense of social disgrace with having run out of uh, wine, and it would have been an embarrassment to the happy couple to think that their parents had not been able to provide in the right way for the many, many hundreds of guests at this particular event. Uh, Karen and I have had have two children. We have two children. Uh, and they both got married within eight months of each other, so we, we know a little bit about you know, sorting out wedding arrangements uh, and the complexity of catering for all the people who are involved in that. Well, for some reason, Mary feels, feeds a, feeds a, feels a need to tell Jesus about this hospitality crisis. Now, was she just complaining or was she somehow suggesting that Jesus could be a part of the solution? 
It's a mystery to Jesus because he says, well, you know, what's it got to do with me? Why should I be bothered in solving this little domestic crisis at this particular event? Well, Jesus is dismissive and doesn't want to be involved. But his mother is undeterred, and as mothers generally are, and if the mother says it, you normally end up doing it because when your mothers speak, you act. Isn't it the way it works? Yeah. I mean, as I used to say when Karen told our children off, I used to go and hide in the bedroom as well. It was such a terrifying experience. Um, so, you know, when mothers speak, mothers, you do what the mother says, so Jesus gets involved. She says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Now, nearby there were six stone water jars, each of which would have held between 20 and 30 gallons. That's 400 to 600 litres. That's a very large amount of water. Uh, and Jesus directs the servants to fill them with water and to draw some out and take it to the master. Just imagine if you were one of those servants. You don't think it would have been a terrifying experience to be instructed to fill the water jars, uh, to take some of this water and give it to the master. Uh, you would have done that in fear and trepidation. Well, the master tastes and discovers that the best wine has been left to last. A miracle has taken place and he has no idea how it actually took place. And no doubt the source of this miracle would have spread rapidly amongst the many guests as they replenished their glasses. Now, it's an amazing story in all sorts of ways because it points to the fact that Jesus was truly human and he was truly entering into the spirit and the celebration of a regular human activity and event. And I think that's profoundly encouraging and lovely, don't you think? Jesus isn't a God who's removed from us and detached from us and disengaged. He was someone who was fully human, fully engaged in the regular activities of human life and human community and was participating in this lovely celebration. The wedding is a foretaste of the great heavenly banquet in store for God's people that we read about in Revelation chapter 21 verse 2 where it says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. So it's an ordinary, ordinary regular human event, but it does point to something significant uh, and profound down the track. Now, the water jars, which were used for Jewish purification rites, are a sign that God is doing a new thing from within the old Jewish system and bringing purification to Israel and to the world in a new way. The transformation of the water to the wine is of course meant by John to signify the effect that Jesus can have and still has in changing lives and for people enjoying fullness of life. Because Jesus did say that I've come to bring life and life in all of its fullness. And here we have that sense of the abundance of the overflowing fullness of God in this celebration of the water being turned into wine. As we face our own challenges and disappointments, remember that the beginning of the transformation came when Mary said, do, what, do whatever he tells you. And I think that's a really interesting little clue, don't you think? If we're going to experience Jesus' transformation and fullness in our lives, it will be in response to following his lead and his guidance. How often do we ever say to God, do whatever you want with me, and therefore make ourselves fully available to him? to be used by him. Well, the phrase I want to focus on today comes in verse 11, because I think this gives us a really profound clue as to A, why this is here, which is an interesting question, but not all that significant in a broader sense for those of us living here today, but as well as that for us as people who want to experience and want to know God as being truly great. It says in verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs 
through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. The son revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. In John chapter 1, at the very end of chapter that chapter, Jesus says to Nathanael, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. And he then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. When God does great things today, it's a sign of heaven and the coming of God's future kingdom. It's an insight into God's overall plan and purpose, and it's a clear reminder that God, in fact, is still great. He's still present in our world, and that his, his plan and purpose is being fulfilled in spite of all of the evidence to the contrary. So as John puts it here, those first disciples saw Jesus' miraculous action, and they therefore believed in him. Now, in one sense, there is one big question at the heart of the Christian journey. And this is the question. Jesus asks each one of us, are you willing to trust me? Are you willing to trust me? Now, there is a prior question that goes with being a person of faith. And again, Jessica touched on it in her short talk earlier, which is, are we prepared to actually put our trust in Christ for our personal salvation, to trust that God's action through Jesus Christ applied to us is going to be the means by which God will save us, reconcile us, redeem us, forgive us and bring us into a new relationship. But flowing out of that and living our lives ongoingly, there's this other question, are you willing to trust me with your life? Now, this is not an academic question that requires an academic answer. It's a personal question that requires a yes or a no answer. Are you willing to trust me with your life? Because when we do entrust ourselves to Christ and commit ourselves to live for him, then we have to trust that he wants the best for us as we live our lives and we actually will be tested again and again as to whether we really do trust him and that he does want the best for us as we go through life and its various challenges. So are you willing to trust me with your life? Now, I mean, uh, so, so do we really believe that as we go through our lives that Jesus is big enough and powerful enough and great enough to actually enable us to get through whatever it is we have to get through uh, as people and as a community of faith together. If we believe and trust in him, I think we see from this miracle that we actually get to see that he's truly great because it's in the living out of our faith that we get to see glimpses of the greatness of God. It's as we trust, if we trust Jesus that we, is in our lives, we get to see his greatness. Now, in terms of water turned into wine, it demonstrated his power to provide, the power to overcome human limitations, the power to be generous and to make something new, the power to actually be someone who could do something compassionate in an incredibly ordinary human situation, a regular recurring situation for any human person in any human context. It's his overflowing generosity and his joy in human celebration. Now, there are plenty of other miracles we could have looked at today. The feeding of the 5,000, the walking on the water, the healing of sick people, the casting out of demons, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, and there are many more. Uh, but the point is this. It's as we trust Jesus in our life today that we too get to see that he's truly great. So God may seem largely absent from the world in which we live, and the idea that God is great may be questioned by many people, but if we are people of faith and as we put our trust in him and rely upon him, as we live our lives, we get glimpses 
into his greatness and therefore we too can behold his glory. Nathanael was promised that he would see greater things and in John 2, Jesus revealed his glory and they put their trust in him. So the question for each of us this morning is, are we willing to trust Jesus with our lives? To trust him with the things that are going on in our lives and to believe that even though it may not seem this way as many times, that in fact he's truly great for us. Because it's as we trust him in our lives that we get to behold his glory and his greatness. Karen and I were invited to come to Melbourne in 1988 by a person called David Pemmon, who was the Archbishop of Melbourne at the time. David was the first evangelical Archbishop in the diocese since the founding bishop. Uh, and there was a fair degree of uh, excitement as well as tension around the nature of his episcopate. So we came to Melbourne in April 1988. Uh, in 1989, I was at the Lausanne Congress in Manila and David was one of the speakers. Uh, David was largely unsighted at the conference and the word went around that he wasn't well. Uh, he gave his three Bible studies and he clearly wasn't at his best. Uh, he flew home from the Manila in the Philippines, had a massive heart attack the next day, went, uh, was in kind of under care for a month and then passed away tragically. Uh, so here we were, Karen and I, leading this fledging sort of new work. There was a fair degree of tension around this work because it wasn't properly funded, which is pretty normal uh, if you work in a diocesan role. Uh, and we were doing new things, but some people had tensions about those new things. Uh, we went through an election synod to elect an archbishop, and as often happens in the Diocese of Melbourne, we failed to elect. Uh, we went through another six months where we had another election synod, and a person of a very different type became the archbishop. And in the midst of all that, we had to keep pressing on in this incredibly insecure and vulnerable work, wondering kind of what we were doing here and how it was all going to work out. Well, in God's providence, surprising things kept happening, even though the external circumstances didn't seem to be quite right. Uh, and we pressed on and many, many miracles took place in that particular work. It's as we trust God in our lives that we get to see glimpses and insights into his greatness and his goodness and his glory uh, and that in itself reinforces us in our desire and our needs to trust him. Uh, and in that way, we get to see God as truly great. Well, the question for us as a faith community at this time too is, are we willing to trust Jesus with our lives together as God's people? Because the Christian faith is not a solo journey, it's something that we share with others and it's something that we experience in community. And as a church, like every church in the past 20 months, 20 months, we've been through very challenging times. No one really knows when the, when the dust will settle as to after the end of what's happened for the last 20 months of total disruption in terms of churches meeting together. And one of the initial tensions that we're going to have to live with is that uh, for the next coming several months, lots of people won't be at church even though we can be at church because people will be taking breaks and having the holidays that they haven't had uh, in the last 18 months. And that's not being critical, that's just a practical reality <laughs> of where we've been. And that will be a, a big attention as well as uh, for lots of churches. All churches are going to wonder where they are up to now that we're back together. But on top of that, at St. Columns, you've had to cope with the sudden loss of a long-term minister, uh, several staff who have left fairly suddenly in the last six months, uh, some planned and some uh, because of their changing, changed circumstances. So you've had a lot to cope with uh, and you look forward to a new minister coming next month uh, and the beginning of a new phase in your life and ministry. 
In the midst of all of that, it kind of could be tempting to wonder whether God's really in control and what's really going on. Well, what I want to encourage you to this morning is to think about the fact that it's actually as you trust God together as a community uh, that you'll actually get to see that he is in control, even though at times it doesn't always feel like he's in control. Uh, and in that way, you'll get to behold his glory uh, because he wants the best for you. Well, it's as we trust Jesus that we get to behold God's glory. In a world of non-faith and in a world where the Christian faith is often held up for contempt, uh, or as she's totally derided, it's in our own lives, personally and as, community, as a community of God's people, that as we trust him, we get to get that glimpse like those first disciples did into his greatness and goodness. And in that way, we get to see that he's truly great. Amen.